G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast, our final pre-Christmas edition, our final episode of 2021. As I say, very good morning to my co-host, Mark Fine. What a year it's been, Finey. Yeah, another amazing year in terms of surviving COVID and then facing new strains, but we've made it. The podcast has made it. So Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all of our loyal listeners. Big thank you to them. You know, just from a uh, football context, I I was thinking uh, the other day that no mean logistical feat, not only getting uh, the 2021 season away, given the obstacles presented by COVID, but the sort of season it was, because I reckon it was a pretty good season, some great storylines, some really good footy. We had normal length games and we had a normal length season and all that with the same sorts of hurdles uh, that were in the way last year. So um, hats off to the AFL, I reckon. I know that's come about three months late, but uh, I reckon it was a pretty pretty decent season of footy given what we're up against, don't you? Yeah, they're, they're very good at getting the job done. and. At times, you wonder why the greater community can't have that sort of level of cohesion and single-mindedness that we seem to be able to conjure up when it comes to football. Well, it's a very good question, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe I'll answer that at greater length another time. But we have got plenty to occupy you as you, uh, let's say, put the decorations up around the tree with this podcast going in the background. We've got uh, plenty of footy news still going on. We've got another edition of Vinyl and Video as we count down our top 20 movies and songs of all time. We are down to number 12 this week. Uh, We have more fantastic footy flashbacks and some interesting life observations in Life Hacks. Plenty to get through, so let's waste no more time. On Footyology Newsfeed. Well, you think a few days out from Christmas, uh, there wouldn't be much footy going on, and there's not a heap to be truthful, but still some important stuff and a couple of things we wanted to talk about today. One is the um, tightening up of tribunal uh, regulations on head high contact and some other alterations to the tribunal. And the other one is the release of the pre season arrangements, of course, on the heels of the release of the fixture proper uh, a week or so ago. So uh, let's start at the most important one that, of course, is the tribunal arrangements. Now, Um, This was foreshadowed by uh, football operations boss Brad Scott last month, but basically further tightening of the guidelines around head-high bumps. 
which essentially, finally, will see players uh, suspended uh, regardless of their intent to contest the ball. And um, previously, if there's been minimal damage inflicted, um, players have occasionally been able to escape with fines. But basically, any head-high bump now will result in a suspension. How do you feel about that? Well, I think we were crying out for it during the season, weren't we? But we were saying it's not just a matter of the outcome. It's You need to stop the action. And obviously, the tribunal next season, under Brad Scott's leadership, will certainly penalise players. And when I say penalise, I mean suspend, not fine players that make head-high contact when bumping. So is the bump out of the game? No. But, again, it becomes even more perilous to do so. I think it's as good as out of the game because you're going to have to get everything so right, um, I think, eventually. And it might take some time, but uh, it will be coached out of players because, uh, like I said, I mean, it's just it's too hard to ensure you get everything right and there is no even incidental contact to the head. Um, now, if you want the specifics of what this change in interpretation is, uh, previously the MRO and Tribunal were only required to give, quote, strong consideration to the potential to cause serious injury. So bumps could still theoretically be graded as low impact and uh, finable. But the, uh, the difference now is high bumps will generally draw a grading of at least medium impact um, even though the extent of the actual physical impact may be low. Um, Scott said last month when he foreshadowed this, a clear message we're giving to clubs and players is that if you contest the ball and you're late and you hit the opposition player in the head with a bump, you're going to be in trouble. Um, so as as we said, Fanny, I mean, it's, it's in keeping with the way the game is going, really. And I think, you know, it, it's a bit of that... Uh, you know, if you're going to talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk. So um, I'm sure there will definitely be cases where we think guys are hideously unlucky because the intent isn't malicious. But um, by the same token, you know, I think you've got to go in with that mantra that the head is sacrosanct. Yeah, and as I said, it's, it's clear now that you sort of bump at your own peril and... I guess the good thing is that we don't totally rely on the outcome of the bump. So the action is being penalised. And isn't that what we were saying all year needs to be done? Yeah, yeah. More uh, more weight given to um, impact and intent and uh, I, I guess less uh, sometimes on the consequences. Um, there, there are other alterations. In fact, seven amendments to the tribunal guidelines in total, some of them very technical, but... Um, Umpire contact is another thing that's going to be treated more harshly. The tribunal will now be instructed to have regard to the number elements of the offence, uh, aggressive, forceful, demonstrative and or disrespectful, which are established in determining the sanction. Um, oh, is that the Toby Green rule? There's no doubt that's the Toby Green rule. And uh, that, of course, if you don't remember, I'm sure most people do, but uh, Toby Green originally given a three-game penalty for demonstrative uh, contact in the um, elimination final towards Matt Stevick. That was appealed 
by the AFL and that penalty subsequently upgraded to six games. So um, that was quite, uh, I must say, I was, I was a little bit surprised by that. The AFL clearly um, had a bee in its bonnet about that one. And uh, I understand why, because, you know, if that was going to be... Um, I actually, I wasn't that fussed by the three games, but I guess it, it six sends a, a far louder message, doesn't it? That you just cannot get in the face of umpires, let alone bump them. It's incredible now in retrospect to think that some people were seriously arguing that Green didn't have a case to answer. Yeah, you know, I was one of them, only because of the sort of ambiguity of the rule at the time. So now... We are under absolutely no illusions as to what can and cannot be done. Umpires are not to be touched. They're not to be... um, Their attention is not to be gained in a physical manner. And demonstrating against a decision um, is probably... To step in tune with... To step in time with this decision... I'd like to see probably harsher penalties for demonstrative um, arguing of a decision that doesn't include touching of an umpire. So the overall respect of the umpire is upgraded. And then we are very clear in where this competition and this sport stands. Yeah, well, one of the, uh, I, I don't disagree with that, but one of the issues with that, and you talk about this frequently, is the attitudes of um, TV commentators, particularly whenever a 50 is given for, you know, demonstrative gesture towards an umpire or whatever, you can rest assured one of the former players will arc up about it and talk about how, you know, oversensitive umpires are when a 50's meted out for something like that. Well, We've talked about the old boy club as well, always, always deferring to siding with the player as though there's some unwritten rule that past players need to stand by current players when it comes to penalties, both on field and meted out by the tribunal. So we need to change that standpoint as well because ultimately these decisions, Rowan, Whilst they are important at the AFL level, their reverberation through lower grades and junior grades of football is far more important. And virtually what we're saying here is there's no football without umpires and we continue to struggle to fill our competitions around Australia with umpires and the effect, the the sort of ripple of throwing the stone in the pond at AFL level is is huge, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, just finishing up on the tribunal, two more amendments to tripping guidelines. The MRO uh, is now able to sanction players for careless uh, trips. Incidents that result in only minor contact can also now be classified as attempted tripping. Uh, there's also some changes uh, to the composition of the tribunal, um, long-serving tribunal chairman David Jones uh, has stood down, as has Ross Howie, and they have been replaced by Jeff Gleeson, who uh, QC, who's generally acting for the AFL in a, um, a prosecuting role at tribunal hearings, and Rene Enborn, 
uh, and Bomb, sorry, also a QC, uh, Deputy Chairperson, um, and will chair AFLW tribunal hearings. All right, so um, some administrative stuff there, but uh, pretty important given how much we talk about the MRO and tribunal during the course of a season. Um, the other news item this week, of course, concerns the pre-season. Um, the fixture released uh, yesterday for the Amy Community Series games, although um, it's a pretty short series. There's only one week of it, uh, similar to um, this year, the start of this year. Uh, some COVID uh, restrictions coming into play there. Uh, sides will, however, have a um, sanctioned practice match against um, a rival club in the lead-up to that. So, essentially, the Amy Community Series is played between Thursday, March the 3rd and March the 7th. Actually, I'll zip through the fixture very quickly. Carlton taking on Melbourne at Marvel Stadium on Thursday the 3rd. Friday the 4th sees the Western Bulldogs taking on Brisbane at Marvel Stadium. Saturday the 5th, uh, much better known as my birthday, Finey, but that will <laughs> see um, Hawthorne Richmond and uh, a great gesture there too with those two clubs um, to play in the northwest of Tassie um, in a fundraiser for the um, uh, families and communities of Devonport and Hillcrest Primary School following that absolutely tragic um, accident last week with the uh, Jumping Castle just unthinkable that story but uh, great gesture there Hawthorne and Richmond to play there to help out um, uh, who else Adelaide playing Port Adelaide uh, Essendon playing St Kilda finally at Marvel Stadium that evening and on the Sunday we have GWS playing Collingwood Sydney playing North Melbourne Fremantle playing West Coast and on the Monday it wraps up with the Gold Coast playing Geelong that uh, pre-season practice game before that, um, the previous two weekends to that uh, March the 3rd to 7th weekend, clubs can organise uh, venue and the scheduling of that game between themselves. Uh, but the designated matchups are as follows. Essendon and the Western Bulldogs, North Melbourne taking on Melbourne, Sydney v GWS, Carlton and St Kilda, Collingwood taking on Hawthorne, Geelong, Richmond, Brisbane playing Gold Coast, West Coast playing Adelaide, Fremantle playing Port Adelaide. Um, gee, the whole pre-season, finally, it's a much um, lower profile concern than it uh, used to be, isn't it? certainly is. I, I saw that the note from the AFL says that teams can organise themselves venues, length of the game, and also a number of quarters. Now, Surely you can only have four quarters. You can't have any different number of quarters, can you? Um, well, yeah, no, it's a fair point. But what were they going to say? The sides can have fifths or um, eighths? <laughs> there have been a few of those practice games where like clubs have called it off by mutual consent. Remember that one? Um, I think it was Port Adelaide playing Richmond only a few years ago. And it was part of the... I think it was, yeah, it was part of the official pre-season series and thus televised, but they, I think Richmond had a spate of injuries and they called the game off because Richmond <laughs> decided they had too many guys injured. 
Yeah, um, well, I remember I remember a game between Richmond and St Kilda at Moorabbin during the week when Kevin Bartlett was coach. And when I got down there, I said, there's no way this game's going to be able to finish in suitable light. And about halfway through the third quarter, I think there are sort of fussed looks amongst the players and KB came out and I don't remember who the St Kilda coach was actually. Might have been the doc. And all the players just walked off halfway through the third quarter. Geez, I'm glad I wasn't uh, covering that one because KB, when he was Richmond coach, was absolutely notorious for uh, keeping the media waiting a long, long time to do the post-game press conference. So <laughs> it would have been a pretty uh, late trip home. Actually, he just reminded me, just on the uh, Bartlett family, uh, Rhett Bartlett, KB, Kevin's son, has been awarded life membership of Richmond for his services to the club as a historian. And, yeah, uh, brilliant. Well done to Rhett because um, yeah, he's a fantastic uh, uh, custodian of the game's history, not just Richmond stuff either, and he posts uh, a lot of stuff frequently on Twitter. So if you're interested, uh, have a look at that. But uh, well done, Rhett Bartlett, and a nice picture of him with his mum and dad, Denise and KB, uh, all looking very well. KB uh, bearding up, finding had a bit of a, yeah, bit of a yeah. grey beard happening, which was uh, interesting stuff. Um, do you know who the do you know who the um other famous sort well more the custodian rep brilliant in in word and in photograph memory of and, and tribute to the Richmond Football Club, but who the great club collector of memorabilia and the hall of the sort of Richmond's got a, a wonderful little um not so little uh hall of hall of fame or, or section of Punt Road where all the memorabilia is kept. And an ex-player, and he played a couple of games, but father of a famous Australian sportsman looks after that. Correct. And you'll be talking about Ron Rifle, father That's right. of former Australian paceman and now test umpire. In fact, officiating in... No, he's the third umpire in this game, I think. Uh, Paul yep. Rifle. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Um, where were we? <laughs> we got sidetracked there. Oh, yeah. I was just saying, well, speaking of Richmond again, um, I mean, you, you, I know times change and there are obvious reasons for it now, but, uh, you know, go back to, say, 1993 when Richmond played Essendon in the pre-season grand final at Waverley in front of 70-plus thousand people. Uh, your mob, St Kilda, taking on Carlton in... 1996 in front of um, almost as many people. I mean, um, if you, you know, for younger listeners, do we have any younger listeners? But if we do, it's hard to remember or it's hard to get your head around just how big it was. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a little bit wistful about the pre-season series. I thought for clubs that were sort of trying to make their way and sort of rise up the ladder or whatever, it was a great sort of momentum builder for them. Um and uh, I thought it was often unfairly dissed as being, uh, you know, not a good guide to the season ahead because Carlton won it a couple of times and then proceeded to finish down the bottom of the ladder. But more often than not, and I think I wrote this several times over the years, more often than not, it did prove a pretty uh, accurate sort of uh, indicator of who might be an improver that season. Anyway... Uh, very different times now, and we cut our cloth accordingly. 
Uh, Rightio, that is enough for news this week. Uh, time now, finally, to continue our countdown in vinyl and video. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Okay, counting down our favourite 20 movies and songs of all time down to number 12 this week. Let's start with movies. And finally, I have gone with a courtroom classic. In fact, uh, this film I saw in a, um, I can't remember what the name of the poll was, but voted the second best courtroom drama of all time. And uh, remind me to tell you what number one is after we talk about this. Uh, but it's in pretty good company. The film made in 1957, I am talking about 12 Angry Men. And if you're of our vintage, uh, and I dare say even a little bit younger than that, um, you would have read this screenplay or seen the film or probably both because it was a um, permanent fixture on the English syllabus over the years and with very good reason what a fantastic film this is absolutely gripping storyline um if you're one of the few people listening to this that haven't seen it uh it uh, obviously follows the progress of uh, a jury's deliberation in a murder trial an 18 year old kid is accused of um, having stabbed his father to death uh, they've heard all the evidence and this film follows the course of the jury's deliberation. And uh, one of the main reasons it's such a remarkable film, the entire film, but for I think three minutes, is um, filmed in the one location, which is, of course, the jury room. So uh, it's very, very reliant on the, uh, on the writing and the dialogue and the acting and uh, all carried off with a plum. This film was directed by Sidney Lumet. In fact, I think it was his first feature film. And what a cast it is. Henry Fonda playing the lead as the juror who at the beginning of the de deliberation is the only juror uh, demurring from an immediate uh, verdict of guilty, which would have seen the young man sentenced to death. Um, appearing with Henry Fonda in this film, Lee J. Cobb, also excellent as um, a man arguing, well, I guess Henry Fonda's nemesis, arguing very passionately for a verdict of guilty. Um, but there are reasons for that, and uh, they are uh, elicited during the movie. Ed Begley, um, Jack Klugman, in what must have been one of his first roles, E.G. Marshall, Jack Warden and Martin Balsam, two more favourite actors of mine, both also in one of my favourite... Oh, I better not say what film I'm talking about because we'll get to that later. Um, but how's that for a cast, Finey? And uh, it's just brilliantly done. And none of the characters even have names. They're just uh, Jura 7, Jura 3. Uh, Henry Fonda is Jura 8. Um, and uh, Henry Fonda over the course of the film, um, you know, starts out arguing that there's enough doubt to at least discuss the case. Um, some people in the uh, jury are anxious to uh, get away to other things. There's a baseball nut who wants to get away and watch his baseball game. Um, 
it, it's just brilliantly done. And I remember, uh, I don't know, I think I might have been year 10 or year 11 and we sat down to watch this and I was thinking, oh, you know, this isn't going to keep keep the uh, keep the natives from being restless. And it did. It was just totally engrossing. Um, and still to this day, you know, 40 years after I first watched it, one of my favourite films of all time, black and white, uh, of course, as you'd expect. Um, in fact, it didn't, I did read last night, it didn't necessarily do that well at the box office. And one of the reasons they thought that might be the case is colour films had just um, started becoming pretty popular and it might have got sort of swamped. But um, the more it screened and uh, the more it showed on TV, et cetera, it came to be acknowledged as a classic uh, of the genre. And um, it's certainly seen that way. A long time later. Fantastic film. One of my favourites, uh, 12 Angry Men. Your thoughts on it, Fine? Yeah, I'm great. presuming you've seen it. Absolutely seen it. And in fact, have you seen the remake? Which now is a quarter of a century old. No, I don't remember the remake, to be honest. Who was in that? Well, that Henry Fonda role was played by Jack Lemmon. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Um, okay. James Gandolfini's in it. George C. Scott. Edward James Olmos from memory. So, and Tony, a very young Tony Danza, I think, was in it. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, but, look, it's it's sort of a famous movie. And really, have you ever done Jewelry Duty? Oh, well, funny you mentioned that because, yeah, you, I, I think I talked about it on this show. I, I got um, – I've been caught up now and, in, in fact – no, this isn't why I thought of it, but just coincidentally, I have just been called up for the third time. And in fact, I was supposed to report for jury duty yesterday. Um, but yeah. I got, I got, yeah, I got an email on Thursday, last Thursday telling me it's been deferred until the new year, but I'll be expected to do it. Um, and I last was called up uh, in 2015 and you know, it was November, so I didn't have enough reason to say I'm I'm too busy or whatever. Anyway, I called I was called up um and I got impaneled for a county court case and uh I went into the jury room and um you know they started reading out the, the numbers uh or whatever and I'm just having a look around and I uh, looked around behind me in the uh, dock and sitting there was the accused and it was none other than Majak Dorr. Um, who was, uh, remember when Majak Dorr was yeah, yeah. In, in the county court? Um, yeah. And uh, I looked around and saw Majak and he saw me and we exchanged nods. And um, then I had to get up and say, well, I had to recuse myself because I knew the defendant. So um, I remember we walked out of the out of the room after they'd impaneled the jury and Heath O'Loughlin from North Melbourne was sitting there and he says to me, what are you covering this for? You know, I think, mate, I wasn't covering it. I was nearly deliberating on it. Um, so anyway, I got out of that one. And then later in the day, I got uh, impaneled for a murder trial. And, and the defence, uh, fortunately, from my point of view, um, objected to me and I, I didn't end up being on a jury. But yeah, like it's, I can't seem to avoid it three times now. Anyway, that was a long answer. Have you been called up? No, never. Yeah, okay. Well, so I hear this so often. I've spoken to people that have been like me. They just keep getting their number called up and others who have never 
done it in a lifetime. Um, so anyway, uh, at this stage, I will be reporting for jury duty uh, in a few weeks. In fact, if we don't end up doing this podcast in the middle of January, you'll know why. <laughs> it's um, it's like a radio ratings book. I've never got one, and I've heard of people getting them on more than one occasion. I almost think it's uh, the Loch Ness monster of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of um sort of public service but yeah i always thought you know if you are if i ever was called to jury duty that movie really resonates doesn't it you've got to be true to yourself and not swayed by the majority and that's true although you wouldn't want to take it to extremes and if there was a, a cut and dried sort of murder case you're, you're trying to argue otherwise I shouldn't be laughing about these things all right no, there was um, a, there was a great episode of minder you know, were you a fan of Minder, the TV show? Oh, on and off, yeah. Yeah, there was a 12 Angry Men episode of that where Arthur actually knew the, of course, knew the defendant and it was in his interest to get the defendant off, even though he was guilty of sin. Yeah. And at one point he's trying to convince a member of the jury who's an Indian woman and he said, look, madam, you only need look at the man's boat to know that he's innocent. And she goes, boat, I don't understand. He said, sorry, boat race. <laughs> nice league shame about the boat race. Yeah. Um, all right, Finey, your number 12 movie, if you will. Well, it also is a sort of lineup of gentlemen. It's interesting that both of our movies are very strong on the male cast, aren't they? Uh, mine is The Usual Suspects, a 1995 crime thriller, a uh, tremendous movie directed by Brian, uh, Brian Singer, and it's got a great ensemble cast. Now, it's very hard to talk about this movie without the old spoiler alert. I don't want to give it away because it really is a suspense-filled movie. It's a story that it's a movie that almost needs to be watched two or three times to finally put all the threads together yourself. But it stars um, Kevin Spacey as Verbal Kent, Benicio Del Toro as Freddie Fenster, Gabriel Byrne as Dean Keaton, Stephen Baldwin is in it, Chaz Parmenteri plays Officer Dave Kujan, uh, Kevin Pollack is in it as Todd Hockney, and the great late Pete Postlethwaite as the mysterious Mr Kobayashi. This movie is about a, a crime committed at the docks in a US city and there's a major explosion, a number of Hungarian sailors left dead and many questions left unanswered. And the usual suspect are a, a ragtag collection of criminals that have been arrested at the same time and put in the holding cells together and between them, come up with a plot for a, a major crime. The sort of spectre that hangs over this entire movie is a very mystical character. And even if you haven't seen the movie, you may have, through popular culture, heard of the name Kaiser Soze. And Kaiser Soze is the master criminal that hangs over this movie, described by some as the most dangerous man on the planet. 
described by others as a, a spook story told to children before they go to bed to make sure that they don't misbehave in you know during the night like a a, a spectre but it's a have you seen the movie it's a great suspense movie and i think one that has rightly a popular place in popular culture I have seen it and I remember I enjoyed it very much, but I'm also very worried about, uh, I'm feeling notorious for um, uh, giving away spoilers unintentionally. So probably the less I say, the better. I will say this though, it was around this time um, I became aware of my unfortunate habit and it's, it's weird and it's got worse where I will see a film and really, really like the film but six months down the track, I cannot remember any of the detail and will get it completely confused with another film of around the same time. And I've done this with that many films and I did it with this one and Seven. Remember Seven? Oh, yeah. yes, yes, yes. I'm pretty Kevin sure. Spacey as well. Ah, well, there, there you go. That was a link, wasn't it? But um, was Brad Pitt in that as well? Yeah, Seven? Yeah. yeah. He's the detective. But I'm I'm pretty uh, pretty sure that came out around the same time. I did it with that. Yep. With the, I also did it with, um, and I don't know if there's no, I don't think these films were the same time. But L.A. Confidential and The Departed. I had this ridiculous debate with someone recently where I couldn't remember which film <laughs> was which. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, no, I do remember. I really enjoyed it, and I do remember how good. Um, Kevin Spacey is in one of the lead roles. And, yeah, you're right, fantastic ensemble cast. So, uh, yeah, I suspect a lot of people have seen that one too. But, um, yeah, terrific, terrific plot. I love well-written films and um, well-crafted storylines, you know. Um, I'm not sure we see enough of them these days. There's sort of a far bigger premium on stunts and action and bloody superheroes, seriously. Yeah, well, that's become... Uh, That's become a major sort of box office item, isn't it? I think because movie makers are worried that movies so quickly go to Netflix or other subscriber services that they try try and create movies for the big screen that they believe only work on the big screen and they superhero movies seem to be that genre, don't they? They do. All right, there are our number 12 movies of all time. I've gone with 12 Angry Men, Finey going with The Usual Suspects. In fact, also the name of my brother's last ever band, Finey, The Usual Suspects. It's it's actually a really good title for a movie and a great title for a band. You know, it's it's a sort of term that we use and... Yeah. Well, you haven't said where it hails from. It hails from uh, a line out of Casablanca, where the um, the local constable, I've forgotten his name, the, the local copper is friends with Humphrey Bogart. Uh, he says, round up the usual suspects yep. uh, after a crime yep. is committed. All right, let's move on to songs. Number 12, song of all time and... Uh, as a lot of my top 20 have been so far and will continue to be funny. I've gone local. I've gone with uh, one of my favourite Oz rock bands of all time. And this, boy, it's a big catalogue of great songs. They have some of the best, I don't know, sort of foot foot stomping, party up, um, very, very listenable, memorable tracks all of which have been played a heap on radio, but uh, this one, 
is uh, the pick for me. I'm talking about the Hoodoo Gurus, Finey, and from 1993, this song, The Right Time. Let's have a bit of a listen. That is a great track, Rowan, and and actually it's pretty special to me because in my time at SEN, I did an hour that of all the radio I did, the most important hour of radio uh, was done with Mick Hall and Gavin Krasiska, and it was our weekly, not look, our weekly discussion with many of our listeners about addiction. Gavin Krasiska, of course, very public in his uh, battle with drugs right throughout his football career. And Mick Hall, an amazing survivor of heroin addiction. And when it came time to naming the program, we came up with the right time and obviously had a song to go with it. The theme music was obvious. So, yeah, it's a great song and has a very special place in my heart. Indeed. It's, it is just a fantastic song. To me, it just encapsulates everything that is great about the Gurus. It's, uh, you know, it's really rocky. You know, Brad Shepard's guitar is really aggressive in it, um, but it, it has a pop sensibility as well. And that, for me, is the great strength of this band, that they write fantastic pop hooks, but they give it a real rocky edge. And I think this song... Um, best encapsulates that and similar uh, in that sense to other staples of their catalogue and I'm, I'm thinking about like wow wipeout and um, what's my scene um, you know you think of those songs and they have great pop hooks but they're definitely rock songs and this one is slightly edgier I think and slightly more aggressive just I love the guitar Brad Shepard is such a great guitarist they are so tight as a band um, it's just everything that's great about rock music in this song, I reckon. Uh, it's accessible, but it's heavy enough and it's it's hooky enough. Great film clip too, uh, if you haven't seen it. And funnily enough, I always remember this. I don't know why, but um, when the footy show was, you know, really at its peak, um, and it wasn't the end of year one, I, I think. Well, I don't think it was the grand final one, but uh, they had, there was one episode they had a band playing. It wasn't trial by video, but it was one of those sort of bands that had footballers in it. And they had Alan Jakovic on lead vocals doing a cover of this, The Right Time. And he did it brilliantly. They were, um, I remember thinking, geez, these guys are great. And that was the song they did, The Right Time by the Hoodoo Gurus. Love the song, love the band. In fact, I think it just brought out a new album or a new single, The Gurus. So still going after close to 40 years. Dave Faulkner, Brad Shepard and the boys. What a great monument to Australian 
rock music they have been. That is my number 12, The Right Time Hoodoo Gurus. What's your number 12 song, Finey? I'll go back a little bit earlier to 1983. It's an English band. I think it was 1982, correction. I did a bit of homework. I yeah, think it was 82, yeah. Okay. I've got it down as 1983, but nevertheless, maybe that's when it was released down under. Um, now, they're not a band that necessarily too many people are familiar with. They're an English band called The Members, and this song is called Radio. Now, it's uh, sort of a big um Park dance number. In fact, it was covered by a duo from the United States who are a DJ modern dance, you know, electronic dance duo called Duck Sauce. And people might be familiar with their piece called, track called Barbara Streisand, where they just sort of repeat her name over and over. But they sampled this and they did a version of radio, just the chorus mainly, which is sort of, um, played over and over as a dancing. But the full number, as played by the members, is big and brassy. It's got plenty of um, brass in it. So let's have a listen to radio by the members. choice I'll, I'll tell you why i i was wrapped when i saw this because i saw your um email with the the members radio and i it was this doesn't happen to me often as you know i've got a pretty steel trap memory for music and footy and stuff and um but it's one of those songs i knew when i saw it that i knew it but i could not for the life of me remember how it went and then as soon as i hit the the clip and the brass and I thought ah yes that's it and it's also one of those songs I literally had not heard I reckon for close to 40 years since when it came out it's funny isn't yep. it so, some songs from that era you know you like my BP down the road where you guarantee the 20 worst songs of the 1980s you will hear on rotation on whatever goddamn awful station it is they have on there but the good stuff from that era, you will never hear. And this song, for whatever reason, falls into that latter category. You just never hear it anywhere. I've never seen the clip on Rage or anything. Yeah. Um, but it is a really good song, and it's a it's a fun clip too. And um, yeah, brass in music was really big in the early eighties, wasn't it? I think of all the all the great songs um, that were around from the early eighties, and a lot of particularly English bands too, sort of, you know, one-hit wonders or, or bands that you, I don't know why, just as I was saying that, I was thinking of um, the Joe Boxers, Just Got Lucky, 
and songs well, the, like that, you know? Well, this this track's a little bit like Only for Sheep by the Bureau. Yeah, correct. It is, yeah. And there you go, brass as well. So, yep. um, yeah, no, really, really good choice, that. I, 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 look, maybe they weren't one-hit wonders, but I can't think of another song they did, can you? No, in Australia, this is the only song of theirs that charted, but they did have other tracks. Uh, and interestingly, there's a bit of a connection with Australia because a couple of the members of this band actually came down under and were studio artists with Ice House. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so there is a bit of a, a link to Australia with the members. Oh, there you go. Um, all right, no, good choice, Fanny. Uh, definitely a fan of that one, and uh, thanks for reminding me of it all these years later. So our number 12 songs of all time. I went with The Right Time, Heard Her Gurus. Finally went with Radio by the members. Fun clip to check it out on YouTube. All right, the nostalgia doesn't end there, however, because finally, shortly, we will have fantastic footy flashbacks. I almost threw to it too early again. <laughs> but first, it's time for some life hacks. Life hacks, building a better world. All right, some uh, good feedback last week uh, on both our life hacks. Finally, of course, mine was about uh, rediscovering the Melbourne CBD. Yeah, that was uh, great. Well, this one, perhaps not so great, but uh, certainly revealing a uh, a penchant. I'm never quite sure how to pronounce that, but a... a penchant. Penchant. Uh, or tendency of mine to get annoyed by things that perhaps I shouldn't be annoyed by. Uh I wouldn't put this in that category, though, because it is important, damn it. That was the point I was making only yesterday, and it's still fresh in my head. That's why I'm going with it. I am not – it concerns a tweet. I will read, finally, what I tweeted. Has to be said again. I'm by no means a grammar Nazi, but I cannot believe just how many people write would of instead of would have. There's very little, rightly or wrongly, more likely to make me think this person isn't that bright. FFS, people, it's not that hard. And yes, there are a lot of grammatical errors that we see committed on a daily basis, but this one is now at plague proportions, finally, and I can't stand it anymore. All you have to do is say it to yourself. He would have had time to catch the train. Uh, she would have had um, a hair appointment. It's she would have had. I mean, it's just so obvious when you say it to yourself what is grammatically correct, not to mention the fact that it has a contraction of would have, should have, could have, which is apostrophe VE. So if it's got a VE in it, how can it possibly be would of? And it's driving me insane, Finey. I see even intelligent people who otherwise aren't intellectually challenged making this error in writing. Why? Why? I can't stand it, Finey. I stand with you on the front lines of grammar policing and good English. Well done, Rowan. Well, you know, look, it, it's it certainly um, it resonated with people this tweet because as we speak, it's up to about six hundred likes, 
Uh, it's also had about 160 odd um, responses too. Some, most of whom were people saying here, here, people pointing out other frequent grammatical errors and uh, the odd person taking issue with me for being a pedant um, also making the argument that uh, language evolves with time and perhaps this is one example but I don't agree with that because language doesn't evolve out of grammatical errors it revolves out of uh, it, sorry it revolves it evolves out of, um, I don't know, shortenings of names or nicknames, but not something which is a mistake because someone clearly mishears or misunderstands what a phrase says. Um, what are some of the other ones people pointed out, though? Uh, well, oh, you know, yep. yeah, go on. Well, I'm, in terms of pronunciation, I hate when people use the word mischievous. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't like that because it's not spelt like that. It's mischievous. No, mischievous. Yeah. But uh, among others, people said, um, people saying uh, he's instead of his. Yep, yep. Uh, what are some of the other ones? Oh, that instead of who. Um, you know, people, contractions are a, a great source of error. People, you know, using the wrong there. Uh, there, you know, there and they are, and well, there's three theirs, isn't there, of various sorts. Um, but this one, I don't know, this this one is particularly annoying because you've only got to just stop for two seconds and say it to realise it, it's not, and it's a function, I guess, of the Australian accent too. I mean, I, want, I bet, I don't know this for a fact, but I bet English people, for example, don't make this error because... They, you know, you say it to yourself, you go, oh, I should have, should have, you know, an English person with an accent would say should have, you know what I mean? They would never, it would yeah, never yeah, sound yeah. like should of, would it? So they're yeah. less likely to write it. So maybe it is a function of our accent, but, um, oh, God, it annoys me. And I don't know, maybe it's unfair. Look, someone accused me of being ableist and, um, but I must say, if I see grammatical errors like that, I immediately think, oh, yeah, okay, I'm not dealing with um, uh, Barry Jones here. Uh, Barry Jones, of course, the former Labor MP um, and uh, pick a box contestant. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, that ages you. Yeah, well, I, I, it, it even predates me, that show. I yeah, just always right. remember yeah. that was how he was best known, Barry Jones, as a former contestant on pick a box. Yep. Um, and occasionally leaning towards the verbose, as we are in, indeed regularly accused of being funny. I don't know why. There's no evidence of that at all. Um, <laughs> all right, that is my life hack, and, and that's enough for that one. Uh, what's your life hack this week? All right, I've got four little ones very quickly. Number one, surely the worst biscuit in the sweet biscuit range, only to be bought if making the inanely boring but i guess good for children chocolate ripple cake is the chocolate ripple biscuit because my wife bought a few packs of them planning them to be part of my daughter's birthday party and 15 year old girls don't like making chocolate ripple cakes but the chocolate ripple biscuit is atrocious you ever had one 
Yeah, I reckon they're okay with milk. Actually, I don't mind them with with milk. Oh, they're a bad biscuit. But those those ice cream cakes are terrific. Big fan of them. Yeah, but you know the chocolate ripple cake just made with cream. Oh, with cream. I thought you made it with ice cream. Well, you can cream. maybe, but you know whatever it is, it's a no bake cake that kids can do. Okay, so that did that uh, that didn't go down that well with the uh, the. No, birth. they're well beyond that. I think we got the age. You know. You still like to think your 14-year-old girl's a little girl. They're not interested in making chocolate ripple cakes anymore, are they? Okay. All right. Observation number two. Now, I'm not going to name the company, the Dandruff Shampoo ad that's on TV, because actually I can't remember which company it is. You know, there's an ad out there at the moment for Dandruff Shampoo, and at the end of the ad, do you know what their big claim is? Uh, it stops dandruff. Removes up to 100% of dandruff and itching. Up to 100%? Yeah. Does that include 2%? What? <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, well, so do you think it should have been uh, removes somewhere in the range of 70 to 100%? Yeah, or they're not claiming that they can remove more than 100% of dandruff. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. What's speaking, up? <laughs> I mean, that's just sneaky, isn't it? Speaking about pedantry, yeah, okay, yep, all right. Fair enough. Number, number three, is there a harder working creature on the planet than a spider? Because last weekend I got one of those cobweb-removing things from Bunnings. There's a cobweb-removing thing. Yeah, it's a thing. It's a long stick that you can make longer or shorter, and it picks up cobwebs. Oh, really? Okay. I thought it was called a broom. No, 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 no. That's a special thing with for cobwebs. Okay. And I got rid of a lot of cobwebs, but strike me down if three days later they're not all back again. Yeah. Yeah, they do work very hard. Well, you know the, yeah. uh, the, the famous... Um, uh, what is it, parable of uh, Robert the Bruce? Yeah, that's right. Uh, of course, uh, was he sitting crestfallen and beaten in a, in a cave, hiding out and seeing a spider continually yep. trying to build its web? Yeah, that's right. You, you sort of want a spider on staff there, that hardworking. I used to have one, but my spider wasn't quite as... Um, <laughs> As committed to work as the arachnids. Are. Oh, yeah, his moments. Jeez, you bloody drove him pretty hard, I reckon, from my observations. But anyway, no, he's a good bloke, Matty Lee. Very good bloke. Okay, go on. And my final observation. Now we're not allowed to use the F word, are we? Uh no, we're not. You sure I can't use it just once? Yeah, no, absolutely. What in the F were the protesters in the city on the weekend protesting about? Oh, don't start me. No, no, what were they protesting about? Oh, freedom. Now, hang on, hang on. We are free. We're basically now, you know, maybe Sydney even more so, but Melbourne and Sydney with high numbers of daily cases are carrying on regardless, whereas the rest of the world are shutting down to Omicron. I just want to know what they were protesting about. Dictator Dan. But, I don't know, Fanny. It's, it, oh, it's become a they're... rallying point for every wacky cause in the universe. Yeah, and some, and some nasty causes as well. But, 
you know, it makes me want to use the F word, Rowan. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, well, you're not the uh, you're not alone there. But uh, actually, as, when you said it, I was just thinking, I don't seem to. They've clearly dwindled in number because we're not seeing the same sort of um, free publicity given to them by various media organisations. No, but they decided to rally outside my house. That was a meeting point. Oh, did they? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Geez, just as well you didn't show your face, they might have um, latched onto some of your previous utterances on this subject and got a little bit nasty. Um, I got, I, I got a bit nasty. Oh, did you? What did you do? You know what? They were very, they were very polite. Actually, uh, I just found the idea of more protests ridiculous, so I chose Saturday morning as the time to hose down the driveway and clean the garage, which is where they were sort of gathering. And I expected a, a real pushback as I was hosing the area. And they were, there weren't many of them there. They were all very apologetic and moved out of the way and excused themselves. So oh, nice. maybe, it, maybe it's not until they get in the city and, and link up with, you know, other nutters. They, they seemed more disparate groups. They weren't necessarily of any... Preformed organisation. They were just the last stragglers of arguing an argument that's already been answered. Well, I would have been uh, more worried by the prospect of them bursting spontaneously into You're the Voice by John Farnham. I think um, that would have been my great fear if I were you. So, uh, well, well handled. Okay, that is a, uh, a quadrilla of life hacks. In fact, we could probably do an, a whole footyology life hack special and you could do it on your own and not have a week off and see how we go because i reckon you could come up with 20 of them no problem at all um all right that is it for life hacks but time for some more nostalgia yes it's that segment again fantastic footy flashbacks all right, Finey, I have gone with another finals classic. In fact, um, and a recent finals classic, this game is talked about by a lot of people as one of the greatest finals of all time. Um, I tend to agree, certainly in terms of tension. Um, one of the most tense atmospheres around a final I can remember. We're talking about 2016, the preliminary final between GWS um, trying to get into their first grand final in only their, uh, what is it, fifth year in the competition, and the Western Bulldogs trying to get into their first grand final since 1961, and in doing so, reverse a shocking hoodoo of uh, something like eight or nine preliminary, losing preliminary finals in a row. Um, and this game was absolutely gripping. It swung this way and that, played, of course, at Giants Stadium, uh, the Giants having the right to uh, earn hosting rights. Um, we have some highlights of the final quarter and what a quarter it was. Let's have a listen. And Mumford shooting out the handball to Davis, who just got it inside 50 as deep as he could. Toby Green. Their strong hands. He just thought about going now. He peels off to Johannesson. Got it into the middle of the ground. Here's Boyd. Goes deep. Good looking kick. Smith the danger mark taken there by Dixon. Dead oh, eye Dixon gets up, runs, plays on. 
A mandatory lap by GWS. Boyd gathers. Got it to McRae on his left, slid the handball back inside under pressure was Dunkley as he got the strength to bust it, went for the fresh area out of the middle. Johannesson, he's a lively player, he can run. Here he Stop goes, pressing ball to bottom belly, bottom belly, no one between here and the goal. Paddles it up, gets back under his left foot to hit the front, to hit the front. The dogs are in front by a point. Bottom belly has brought them to their feet. Clay Smith's going to be so tough to get out for them. <laughs> Through with speed there. The knockdown. Here he is again, Smith. He's a goer. Left foot high in the air. Anyone's ball. A mark will count. Up goes Davis. The spoil was good. Daniel beat the ball in front of goal. Corey's got another. They've kicked it. They've hit the front, the dogs. Illegal disposal, said the umpire. So Whitfield slams it on the boot. Jeremy Cabrera, up he goes. Couldn't hold the mark. Green with a quick boot. Lands with Patton. He's taken the mark. Pickens' mother was enormous. He goes back in, flicked it out. The Liberatore up and under job. Dunkley's the one. Dixon pushed off it. Big pack. Who can get it front and centre? Bond and Pelly's there. Liberatore. McRae's out the back. He'll hit McRae. Haynes gets there. No, it's McRae. Draws breath directly in front to give the Bulldogs a six-point lead. He's done it. The Dogs are in front by a goal. He goes down the line. 40 seconds remaining. Up they fly. If they go inside 50, they've just about got it. Over the hand of Boyd. Boyd to Stringer. Stringer can go all the way. He kicks to the middle. And Dixon marks. I think the Dogs are going to get there now. I've been wanting to say this for as long as I can remember. The Bulldogs go through to a grand final. Can you believe it? The siren will sound. A 55-year drought ended. The Dogs are in the grand final. Wow. What about that? 20,090 days since their last grand final. And the Dogs have made history. The big dance with Gripping, gripping drama. Um, and indeed, only one goal scored in the last 10 or so minutes of play, but just back and forth, both sides with their chances. Of course, the Giants um, kicked two really quick goals at the start of that last quarter, and the second one by Toby Green gave him a 14-point lead. And under the circumstances, you thought it might just about be enough, but Tory Dixon responded quickly. And then a couple of goals quickly after another 10 or so minutes from the Bont running into an open goal. And then Zane Cordy, that put the doggy seven points up. And you thought maybe they're there, but then Jonathan Patton responds. It's a point, the difference. And a couple of, uh, another point to Johannesson, a couple of points to the Giants, scores level before Jack McRae taking that crucial mark and converting and then that last passage of play with uh, Jake Stringer centering the ball to Tory Dixon, who uh, ended up hitting the post after the siren, but the game won there amid chaotic scenes and the doggy fans just so ecstatic after finally breaking that curse, getting into the grand final, which of course they would go on and win triumphantly the following week against Sydney, delivering the club's second only premiership and their first since 1954. Gripping game of footy, finally also marked, and uh, you can hear his voice quivering with emotion. Luke Darcy calling the finish of that game and uh, scenes of 
Tony Libertore in the crowd. What an emotional evening that was for the uh, the Bulldog Army, Finey. Rowan, I, I put this to you. Yes, GWS, of course, we know, subsequently made a grand final, the one that they were soundly beaten by Richmond in. Is that the best GWS team and the closest they've come to winning a premiership? I would have thought so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, agree entirely. I mean, the, the next year, of course, beaten in a preliminary by Richmond by six goals and uh, not that far off. But uh, this was this was a side that had the momentum, of course, had scored what was an upset win over um, Sydney in the qualifying final to get to the preliminary. This was their big chance. And, of course, they did make a grand final in 2019, but that was coming from a lot further down the ladder. Uh, this was their chance, and history will say they didn't grasp it. The Bulldogs did in that incredible finals campaign, of course, when they went to Perth, beat West Coast, and they beat Hawthorne, and they won this game in Sydney and then the grand final to win the flag from seventh place on the ladder. What an amazing finals campaign it was. But this one, probably the uh, most tense of those four finals wins. Uh, good to relive it. Um, all right, Finey, what have you got for us on the flashback front? Okay, I'm not going back that far, just last year to 2020, but we haven't been all that kind to Carlton as we take our flashbacks. I think there's been a few times when they've been on the receiving end. This time, though, it was an amazing victory with one of the greatest after-the-siren kicks the game has ever seen. So let's go back to round 12, 2020, Fremantle hosting the Blues. The poning down, Eddie Betts on the fly. Hughes' kick doesn't clear the area. Sonny Walters with brilliance. Bouncing ball. Tavener, pretty happy to see it out as a deliberate... It is. Play on. 14 seconds left. That's out in the full. The one thing you couldn't do. I reckon Casper should have taken the run. Yep. Downfield. Oh, we've got a downfield down free. Absolutely amazing. I, I reckon, uh, I mean, I hope it's not the case, but I'd be really surprised if when he retires, Jack Nunes, he's remembered for anything more so than that. And But rightly so. I mean, it was just, that is, surely that is the greatest uh, post-siren goal to win a game of footy. The degree of difficulty is wet. The angle, had to move the chair out of the way and the, the the security guy out of the way. I remember I remember watching live and thinking, yeah, this is about a hundred to one, this shot, but it actually never looked like missing. What an incredible shot for goal that was, given the circumstances. The only goal of that final quarter as well, really low scoring game, final scores 5-10-40 to 5-6-36. And I think that was the second year in a row, actually, the Blues pipped um, the Dockers in Perth. Mark Murphy had snapped a goal to win them the game against the Dockers in Perth the previous season. So incredible stuff. And, um, uh, yeah, I wonder I wonder if someone had framed a market 
on him kicking that goal at that moment. I wonder what price he would have been because I would have I would have thought pretty long odds. Almost impossible to imagine him kicking it. I mean, Robbie Gray kicked a, a similar goal from the boundary. Was that against Carlton? Uh, it was against Carlton, yep. At, uh, was it Carrara? No, yeah, it was. It was a Carrara. Or was it the Gabba? I'm pretty sure it was Carrara. Yeah, so we sort of expect it from Robbie Gray, but Jack Nunes, a steady kick, but no one would have imagined him to kick that. That was his 11th game for Carlton. He'd played 155 games for St Kilda. And, yeah, I think it's fair to say that in a career that's close to 200 games of league football, he might just be remembered for one thing, Rowan. I think that's a fair call. Amazing stuff. Uh, well done, Jack Nunes. And there you go, Carlton fans. Uh, we're not uh, we're not serial Carlton bashers. We've given you a bit of Christmas joy. Um, speaking of which, uh, that's the end of our show for this week, Finey, and uh, the end of the year in footyology. Um, big shout out to everyone for your loyal support again. And of course, you can continue to support us at the ACAST support page, wherever you listen to this podcast or jump on the Footyology website. Still going strong with plenty of content uh, most days of the week there and um, become an official Footyology patron for just $7 Australian per month. We really do value your support. But uh, look, this is our last show of the year. We're having a couple of weeks off. We will return on the Tuesday, the 11th of January. So, um, allow me to thank everyone, to thank you, Finey, for your efforts this season. Of course, our wonderful producer, Damon Jackman. We will get him to uh, come on and do some actual voicing just to prove he is a real person. Um, but he is an absolute Trojan for this show and for our live streams too. So uh, many thanks to you, Damon. You're indispensable to this little operation, but uh, not as indispensable even as you guys out there and girls, um, we really value your support. We've been going a fair while now and we couldn't have continued to keep going without your loyalty and your support and your suggestions and occasional criticisms, whatever. We um, do this for you guys and we love that you love it and uh, we love your feedback. So um, thank you so much uh, from myself and Finey. Well, Finey, you can thank people yourself. Rowan, you've said it beautifully. We are indebted and always just in awe of our support that we get from our listeners. So Merry Christmas to all of you. And for those not celebrating Christmas, happy and safe times over the festive season. Hopefully the new year brings for all of us a better world. And we speak of COVID and we speak of just how people get on and hopefully it's a better place in 2022. And to our wonderful producer, Damon, and his beautiful partner, Ash, Merry Christmas and a special thanks to you. So, yeah, big thumbs up to all our supporters out there, Rowan. Well said, Finey. Uh, Merry Christmas, everyone, uh, and a Happy New Year. Stay safe and uh, we'll see you a couple of weeks into 2022. See you later.